Haggai, however you want to pronounce it. It comes right after the book we just finished studying. So it's if you can find Matthew, then you can find go backward towards the Old Testament, about three books, and you'll find the book of Haggai or Haggai. And we're going to study this this morning together. We finished last week studying Zephaniah and <clears throat> talking about how Zephaniah is this minor prophet with this major theme of the entire Bible. And with that, um, we now come to the book of Haggai. And this morning, what I want to do together is I'd like to preach through Haggai together, um, let you see kind of um, some trends from the Old Testament that could be applied to today's life. Uh, what it looks like to uh, to live in freedom, uh, the freedom that God has given us, and how that how that life should look like even even today. So as we study that, my hope is that um, that God would teach us this morning, but also that our minds would be uh, fixated upon uh, the cross, our identity in Christ, how we're hidden in Him, like we've talked about the past three weeks or so. Um, how uh, Christ is is everything that we are or should be, and that our whole lives in Him uh, being modeled to the rest of the world that for Christ's glory, uh, for His for His name's sake, for His kingdom, so we live so we live our lives. So I want to pray for us, and then um, then we'll begin this morning. Lord Jesus, as we search Your Word this morning, as we preach and teach through it. God, may you be glorified. God, may our hearts be changed. May our souls be awakened to what you've done for us, what you're doing for us, what you're going to do. God, may we as a church this morning, may we leave here from this building in unity, desiring to live for you, desiring to serve together desiring to give you and you alone all of our worship. Got to pray this morning as you teach us, as you speak to us through your word. God, may your Holy Spirit equip us for the work that you have set out for us. God, for many of us who, who wrestle with purpose and identity for ourselves, for our family, even for our church, God, may you speak to us this morning in a way that gives us clarity, that speaks simply, that we might hear from you, that we might be changed by you, not so that we can brag about that or become prideful, but instead so that you may receive all the honor and the glory. God, thank you for what we sang this morning in worship of you. God, I pray that you would speak to us so that we so that we may worship you in response with our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to talk about this morning, one of the first things you have to think about when you think about Haggai is this post-exile or post-captivity life, what it looks like to have been in slavery or in captivity, but then to be a be freed from that. And so what does life look like post-exile, post-captivity, post-slavery? What does life look like for people belonging to God who used to be slaves but, are, but have now been set free? We, we also live in a similar world. We, we may not have experienced it ourselves, but we're familiar with slavery. We're familiar greatly with freedom. 
And so how do we use that freedom for the glory of Christ? What does it look like even for us to live post-exiled lives? Life acts after being in slavery or life after being in exile, in captivity. Maybe that's to sin or maybe it's even literally being slaves to someone or something. What does it look like to live a different life? One of the struggles that the people belonging to, uh, to God had was their post-exiled life became this preoccupied life. And not occupied with the things that God so desired for them to be occupied with, but occupied with other things. Some of them were good things. Some of them were things that God had given them, but they weren't the greatest things or the greatest thing to be occupied with. And so, so think about this. At the end of every race, every timed race, each racer's time is posted for all to see, right? You've, You've got it posted on a screen or in some way. The race is over and now these times of the racers have been posted. It's posted who has ran the best time. It's also posted who ran the worst time. Everything is on display. Also on display on that same list, posted for all to see, down at the very bottom of the list, past the worst time, mind you, are those listed as DNF, those who did not finish. They started the race, but for various reasons, they never finished. Now, now mind you, I've never ran a marathon. I ran one timed race as an RA back many years ago. I think I was in second grade. I did get second place, and I'm bragging about that. There were three of us in the race. Third place tripped, and I'm not making that up at all. So I got second place by default of a trip. And so so anyways, I'm not a racer. I'm not a runner by any means. In fact, my last name is Thackerson, not Trackerson. I'm more of a DNS, like did not start. If there was a gun that would go off for the race, just label me as a DNS, did not start. But there are many who try and run races, timed races, for the sake of getting a, a personal best time or for the sake of winning an award maybe. And for whatever reason, they don't finish. And so beside their name is this list, or these three initials, DNF. And maybe, maybe you're not a racer. Maybe you're not someone who's been in track or, or running at all, like myself. But you probably have some sort of project or goal that you started at some point, some point in your life, but you just not have, you haven't finished it yet. Wives, particularly, you know what I'm talking about with your husband. They had some project that they started many years ago, and you keep asking them, when are you going to finish that project? Or maybe husbands, you could say the same to your wife. Or maybe a student in school, back in the, in the beginning of the fall semester, back in August, your teacher said, we're going to do these things. And as school started this semester, you began to think, when are we ever going to finish that project? Maybe you are still working diligently to complete that task. Maybe you're faithful to it. The project's just taking longer to reach the goal. Or maybe you've been distracted with other things in life. You all know about distractions. Someone gets sick. uh, Something else comes up. You lost your job. You got a new job. You moved. Whatever the case may be, we begin to get distracted by many things in life. Or maybe, maybe you recognized at some point that the goal or the project that you were aiming to complete you recognized that it was just a waste of your time. It wasn't worth it, and so you, you stopped. You didn't finish the project. Or maybe you've just given up completely and moved on to something else. I mean, think about this. No one really starts a race or anything else in life 
with that mentality or this mentality of, I'm going to start this, but I'm never going to finish. I mean, that's, pes- that's being extremely pessimistic about something. You know, people who are extremely negative, and even when they start something, they, they have a little bit of optimism, a little bit of hope. I'm going to start this with the hope that I will finish, but they don't have the, necessarily the mentality of, I'm going to start this with the idea of, at some point, I'm going to quit. I mean, do you know of anyone who started a marriage that way? Who in their marriage vows said, we will be married for a short time and then we will end this. That's not necessarily a goal of most marriages. How many of you have started a book this year and said, I'm going to read the book of Matthew or I'm going to read this particular book and I'm going to finish it. And then about day six, you you decided, you know what, it's just not worth it. And so you wrote on your deserted island notebook journal, it's just not worth it to finish this book. How many of you have started a movie, and the movie got really boring, and so you fell asleep, and you never finished that movie? You know, it started out well with the title, and after that, I don't know anything else. Or friendships, or maybe a quilt, or a vacation. Second day of vacation, you know what, this isn't worth it, let's, let's go home, etc. I mean, you, you know, we don't have that mentality. I mean, do you know of anyone who has, who has said, I'm, I'm going to start out, I'm going to build a house? only to lay down the foundation and give all the appearances of starting, but then quitting and never finishing. And you begin to have a conversation with this person. How's the house going? Oh, it's great. We started it. What does it look like now? It looks like the beginning of the house. At some point, we're going to finish this. Really? Okay, great. What's the address? Oh, I don't know. 1011 West DNF. Like it just did not finish. I mean, this is the history recorded for us. In Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah, those three prophets or those three books go hand in hand. Thankfully, God has given us Haggai or Haggai as a cliff note, as a smaller version. Some of you, your attention spans are a lot shorter and I've already lost you. So if you want to study well this week, read Ezra, read Zechariah. We're going to begin next week preaching through the, through the book of Zechariah. Uh, but for now, we'll, we'll take in this cliff note, this short history recorded story of what happened to the post-exile Israelites. The history of the post-exilers are starting with their temple rebuilding project, yet they did not finish. And it seemed as if the people belonging to God, whom God rescued from slavery and then rescued again from exile, began living, began living preoccupied lives. They started out, they were in captivity, the Israelites had been in, in Babylon in captivity until Babylon was taken over by, by, by Persia and King Cyrus. This is all found in Ezra chapter 1, and you can read that at some point. Cyrus then, in his spirit, stirred in his spirit, received word from the Lord to let the Israelites go back to Jerusalem that they may bit, rebuild the temple of God and in hopes bringing God glory uh, because of his temple, like his reputation being put on the line King Cyrus hears this word, being stirred in his heart, says, you know what, no longer will the people belonging to God, the Israelites, will they be in captivity, but instead I'm going to release them that they may go back. In fact, I'm going to order a decree saying, you guys that belong to God, you Israelites, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple so that he may receive glory because of this. So now, no longer exiles in captivity, the Israelites began to take on their new identity. I mean, they'd been in captivity for a number of years. They'd been slaves living in a foreign land for a number of years. And so this new identity comes about. Who are we post-exile? We're no longer in captivity. We have freedom. What do we do with this freedom? 
And so Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah record for us the history of this post-exile identity-finding journey. The prophet Haggai records for us a brief history on the struggle to finish, on how the Israelites lost enthusiasm for God's house and God's glory. I mean, think of the similarities even in our own world today. Have you struggled with this? Have you struggled even in your faith? Be honest, be real with yourself this morning. Have you struggled to finish and persevere to the end? Have you wanted to give up? Have you wanted to no longer trust in God, trust in His promises, trust that He will keep those promises? Have you wrestled with thinking about giving up? I mean, I have. I'm being real and honest with you. Zechariah 11.17 says, You pitiful, pitiful shepherds who have deserted the flock. Those are harsh words for someone who, who likes to claim that I'm a shepherd, a pastor, one who looks out after a flock, yet have, have had moments where even in my own thoughts, my own struggles, my own wrestling, said, do I want to finish what God has started? Do I want to continue on? Lost enthusiasm, lost hope in what God has promised. Maybe you're not like me, and I hope that you're not. I hope that you're different. I hope that God is working in your life, that you've never had these moments, that you wake up daily saying, I want to persevere. I want to continue on in faith. No matter what what occupies my life, what distractions may come, what, whatever struggles may come my way, whatever trials may happen, maybe you fight the good fight. Maybe you, you, you trust in God's Word faithfully. And I would love for you to teach me how to do that. And so the book of Haggai, Micah Fries says this. He says, the book of Haggai is the story of God's people who were focused on their own satisfaction and failed to flourish because of it. Their repentance and obedience would result in God's blessing. So the crazy thing about the book of Haggai, recorded, is that the prophet or preacher Haggai preaches this word from the Lord The people hear it almost like Jonah. They hear it and say, you know what? Let's repent. Let's obey. Let's listen to the words of the Lord. Let's turn. Let's go in a different direction, the direction that God has desired from us. us. So Haggai 1 and 2, there's two short little chapters here. We're going to read all through this together. Then we're going to talk about our own identity as a church and end this morning thinking about how God's going to or hopefully use us in the future, the future being this afternoon and the rest of the time that we're here together. Haggai was written about 520 B.C., uh, about 100 years uh, after the the stuff that we just studied in Zephaniah. And the whole idea here is that the the project of rebuilding uh, the the temple, the idea that, hey, you people have lost your enthusiasm. You've lost your zeal for God's house. You've lost your enthusiasm or your zeal for God's glory. And we need to get to the root of this. What what has happened to your heart? What has happened to your passion? What's happened to your enthusiasm that you've lost this? In fact, the rebuilding, after they left captivity and made their way back to Jerusalem, the rebuilding project lay dormant for about 16 years. Let me think about that. 16 years ago, where were you? What were you doing? What did you try and start 16 years ago? I mean, I think about for my own self, and I'm really, really young. 16 years ago, I had all these hopes and expectations of changing the world. And maybe you have the same. Some of you who are well along in years, you think back to 16 years ago, and you think, I didn't expect life to be the way it is today. Even in our own church, even in First Baptist Church Lovington, 16 years ago, you know this if you've been here. If you've been here the course of those 16 years, you know that our church even looks drastically different than it did 16 years ago. And so we have to say, why? 
not necessarily about our church, but yes, and about yourself and about the world. What is it that, that's changed? What's going on? What's different? And so I think the book of Haggai helps us in this. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 says, It's in the second year of Darius, or like some would say, Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So this word comes to, to two leaders. Haggai goes and he preaches this word to two leaders. And he says this in verse 2. He begins with this urging of the Israelites to, to get over their apathy and no longer delay their obedience to God. What is it that you've been preoccupied with? What is it that you've been being led by? What is your identity? He says this in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Right? The people. 16 years. They had a decree from the king of Persia. Move back to your home. No longer be foreigners or strangers in this land, but instead you're out of captivity now. Move back to your home and get to the, the task of rebuilding God's temple. It had been destroyed. So, so get, get after it. Get to work. Start rebuilding the temple. Why didn't they begin right away? Why is it now 16 years later that they've waited? How many of you have done this? We call it procrastination. We find something else better to do. We, we occupy our times with other things. The people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. I would ask why. Why or who gave these people the authority to say, the time has not yet come? Who's making these decisions? Who's decided for the whole group? Who's influencing the entire, the majority, not to be rebuilding the temple? The people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4 says this, is it a time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So think, the temple had been destroyed. The temple that was representing God, putting his name on display. Even the king of Persia, the king of Babylon, they knew whose house that was. They knew who should be living there, who should be receiving the honor, like their own palaces. If I was a king and my palace was destroyed, I'd want it to be rebuilt in honor of my name so that people would see it. I'm a great king of Persia. I'm a great king of Lee County or whatever the case may be. I want people to see my greatness. And so symbolically with the temple, we're seeing here that this is representing, putting God's reputation on the line, saying God's temple that has been destroyed is saying things about his name. It's saying things about his glory. Think similarly about God's people even today. But what are we, as the bride of Christ, representing to the rest of the world? What are we, as the bride of Christ, as people belonging to God, putting God's glory on display, what are we representing to Lovington, Lee County, the nations? What are we putting on display? I mean, it's a simple question. I mean, is it time for you, yourself, to dwell in paneled houses? Houses that were already of comfort, but now you're adding panels, extra panels to them to make them even more comfortable to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, what has happened? Uh, sorry, I, I, in paneled houses, while this house, the house of the Lord, lies in ruins. I mean, what has happened? What, what has changed their course? What has caused them to lose their enthusiasm or zeal? Now, think about this. M maybe as exiles, maybe as people in captivity, people that were not in freedom, Maybe they had come to consider the foreign land their home. You know, I kind of liked where we were living. It was comfortable there. Even though we were in slavery, 
even though we were in captivity, still I enjoyed that. And maybe their identity got wrapped up in that. Hey, we were strangers, yes, in a foreign land, but we enjoyed that foreign land. We became comfortable with that foreign land. In fact, our identity is wrapped up in that. Similarly, in the New Testament, we hear this also, an urge for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, recognizing that we are people belonging to God because of Christ, and that we should no longer live as people of this world. But instead, we should recognize that we are strangers, aliens, foreigners in this land, that this land is not even our home. So we can't be preoccupied with the things of this world when our home really isn't even in this world. We must be occupied with the things of eternity, the things that Christ has set his mind towards. And we follow in his likeness, setting our minds towards the same thing. Or maybe some may have been doing really well financially and feared risking time or money on God's temple and his kingdom. I mean, think about that. They had houses, houses of comfort possibly in this new land or in the, in the, in the land of Jerusalem now. And they had houses that were houses of comfort, and then they added extra panels to them, so it seems. So, so they must have been having some sort of wealth that would allow them to add extra comfort to their land. Uh, Jesus fights this in Matthew 6.24 when he reminds us that no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or serve one and serve and not serve the other. We have to see this even in our own world today, the similarities by what's, what's happening here in 520 B.C. and what's happening today in 2019. Or maybe, maybe the Israelites, maybe these people post-exile, maybe they were just confused on their purpose, the purpose of their lives. Maybe they're confused on their identity, preoccupied with so many other things. I mean, even the words from Jeremiah may have sent some extra added confusion that caused them to be preoccupied with even things that seem like good things. I mean, listen to this from Jeremiah 29, 4-7. Some of you are going to say afterwards, can you repeat to me Jeremiah 29, 4-7? Because I don't know that I've ever read this. Are you sure this is what the Bible says? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is recorded right before Ezra. Build houses and live in them. I mean, this is what the Lord is decreeing. He's given this word to the people. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons. Have daughters. Take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, maybe they got wrapped up or occupied with even good things building houses, taking care of their family, putting these things as priority, making this what their whole life is all about. And the Lord begins to remind them, that's not what I've only created you for. In this, you've made good things the greatest things. You begin to worship even these paneled houses or your families. No longer can you do that. No longer be confused of what our purpose should be as a church or as an individual, as a family, as a widow, as a retiree, as a senior adult, a young adult, middle-aged, baby, whoever you are, understand why you exist. Understand why Christ has put you here. Why he has put you here at this time for this season. Why has he done that? Why do you exist? And I hope by the end of today, you will understand even more why you exist. Verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Uh, this this um, thought of put your heart on the path. 
Put yourself out there and think about why you're doing these things. You have to ask yourself the same thing this morning. What is it that I'm living for? Why do I exist? What's my purpose? What's my identity? Why is it I'm doing these things? Let's consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. So you've worked hard, but you've gained little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And who earns wages does not does so uh, put them into a bag with holes. You're doing all this. You're laboring in vain almost. Psalm 127 gives us a great picture of this. Unless the Lord builds his house, it will be destroyed. Those who do that, if they labor and do it on their own and not let the Lord do it, then they're laboring in vain. All these things, if you're doing them for yourself, for your own glory, for your own comfort, for your own satisfaction, not for the glory of God, you'll never be satisfied. And so thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, consider your ways. And as always in Scripture we see, once... God brings an indictment against you. Once he acknowledges or convicts you of your sin, he always gives you a command. What is his command? His command is, in this case, in many places, go. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin. I mean, this is a crazy, this is almost crazy talk. While each of you busies himself with his own house, you've lost, you've lost enthusiasm. You've lost purpose. You've lost identity. You began living for yourself. You began living for your own passions, your own purposes, your own homes. All the while, while God and his reputation and his kingdom and his, his temple even lie in ruin. Therefore, the heavens above you withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. So God is saying, because of your actions, because of your actions, there's a drought. Verse 11, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. So because of your distraction, because of what you've been preoccupied with, now there's a, a drought. Have you lived through a drought before? Have you been thirsty before? Have you been working tirelessly and just need a drink before? And you've wondered even maybe in your own spiritual life, why is it I'm putting all this time and effort into growing in Christ, sharing the gospel, planting seeds? What is going on? For my own self, and I think from what we see in Scripture in that moment, you say, not what is going on, but is there sin I need to confess? Am I being disobedient? Has Christ called me to do something that I am not doing? Has he commanded something of my life that I should be following, so that I should be obeying? Where I grew up, we had two lakes and a river and a couple of creeks. One of them is called Stink Creek. I think every county in, in the world has a Stink Creek. You can guess where that creek leads to or led out of. Champion Creek Reservoir is one of the lakes in my hometown south of my city. The purpose of building of Champion Creek Reservoir was to dam up Champion Creek, to build a reservoir for Lake Colorado City. Lake Colorado City had a power plant on it, and so the the water levels at Lake Colorado City needed to be maintained at a certain level. And so when those levels dropped below the levels they should be, they began draining water out of Champion Creek in order to maintain the proper levels of Lake Colorado City. A drought happens Champion Creek begins to run slower, less. 
salt cedars come into the creek and begin to drain up even what's left there. And slowly, it seems faster than it actually happened, but slowly, Champion Creek Reservoir became, became Champion Creek all over again. No longer necessarily a lake. In fact, if you go and look online at water data, you can see that there's a, a period of time, particularly when I was in junior high till about my freshman year of college, that there was no data for Champion Creek. There was no data, measurable data for Champion Creek because the lake had gone so far below uh, where they could measure that it was really just a creek. And in that... It's a place that I grew up going fishing often. My friend Clay Eats and I fished there often. He lived at the lake and we would try and spend most weekends fishing as often as we could. We had our particular lures that we loved to fish with. Spinnerbaits, crankbaits, uh, spoons and pork frogs or whatever the case may be. We were fishing and we were catching bass often. And then the drought happened. The places that we normally fished in, the places that we normally caught fish were no longer there. Things had changed, and so we had to recreate almost the way we were going to fish. What is it we're going to do? And I remember one day going fishing with Clay, and he said, Hey, I've tried something new, and it's been working. Oh, yeah, what is it? And he grabbed a, a package of, of worms, plastic worms, dark watermelon, red, flake, plastic worms. What am I going to do with dark watermelon, red, black, red and black flake, plastic worms. What am I going to do with this? We're going to put a hook on it. You're going to catch fish. And sure enough, I put a hook on it, dropped it down by one of the trees in this drought, and sure enough, caught a fish. And then for days or weeks, it seemed as if we were nonstop catching fish on this new and ingenious idea of a watermelon worm that looks nothing like a watermelon, by the way. We caught fish. I told this story to some of you uh, Sunday night, but my dad comes out and says, hey, dad, you got to try this watermelon worm. I'm not putting on a watermelon worm, son. Why not, Dad? That's not what I fish with. Well, I understand, but don't you want to catch fish? Well, yeah, I do. Is what you're using catching fish? Well, well, no, it's not. Can you try something different? My dad said no. Not to his fault. He's a fisherman. He still has those series of, of casting that gives him perpetual hope that at some point he's going to catch something on his spoon with a pork frog on the end. And by the way, they no longer make those pork frogs, but he's still trying. Well, I would toss out a watermelon worm and, and catch a fish. The drought changed things. It made them begin thinking, made us begin thinking. Do we have to do things differently? Do we continue trying the same things over and over again, or do we do something different? And so in this case, verse 12 says this, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. How awesome is that? Parents, you know about this, grandparents. The first time that your child obeys you, do you not like weep over it? I've been trying to get you to obey me for years. And now you've, you're obeying me. And you're just weeping over the fact that you're not having to argue with them. Instead they said, you know what, mom, dad, grandparent, grand, grandpa, grandma, you're right. I'm going to obey what you're saying. And you weep over that. They obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people, what happened? They feared the Lord. They saw the hand of God at work. He's responsible for the drought. He's responsible for these things. Let's live our life for him and for his glory. Let's fear him and him alone. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I'm with you, declares the Lord. 
What hope is there in that? Do you hear that in the words of Jesus? I'm going to send you out. Though it seems I'm ascending and going away from you, I'm not leaving, here by, leaving you here by yourself. No longer will you be orphans, but instead I'm going to send someone to live in you, among you, to be with you forever, never to be alone. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God is living inside of us. That we are his ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5. That we, he's making his implore, he's imploring the world through us. Making his, his appeal to the world through us. That we are his, we are his instruments. That he's using to declare his glory to the rest of the world. Verse 14 says this. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah. And the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And the spirit of all the remnant, the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. They obeyed the Lord and they got to work, doing what God had commanded them to do. I mean, what a great moment. They obeyed God. I mean, what might happen if we, the people belonging to God, continued or started again or began for the first time listening to God, inquiring of Him and Him alone? What would happen if we repented? Repented of inquiring of ourselves or finding our identity in the things of this, of this world or working for our own salvation? What if we repented of our thinking that we exist for our own pleasure and our own satisfaction? What if we began to truly seek unity with Christ, hidden in Him for His glory? What would happen if the whole, not just a few, but the entirety of God's people repented and said, God, we want to obey you and you alone? Verse, two, or verse 1 of chapter 2 says this, In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Many of you here are the same way. I mean, think about it. I saw something from 1972 from this church from the glory of this church. And we get to take part in some of the things. But you remember, you've, you've often reminded me of that, of how great things were. So Haggai's saying that. Maybe he saw Solomon's temple. Maybe he's old enough to see that. And he says, you remember what it was like in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Are you broken over that? Are you in tears weeping? Christ, this is your church. This is for your glory. Would you pray like I pray? Lord, stir up in your people, in our hearts, in our spirit. Let us be awakened to who you are. Seeing us as you see us. Our identity in you and you alone. Us existing together for you, for your glory. That the entire world might might know how incredible you are. That the entire world might know your son. The entire world, even the entire city of Lovington, might become, might become, might begin proclaiming the excellencies of Christ because He is it. And who is left among us who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Do you hear this over and over again? Continue hoping in the Lord. Find your strength in Him and Him alone. Be strong in God. 
declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I have made with you when you came out of Egypt. God has made a promise, a covenant with his people. He, is, he still has a covenant that he has made with his people. And that covenant, that new covenant for us, is Jesus. And he has kept his promises and will continue to keep his promises. And that's why we find our identity in Christ and Christ alone. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Verse 7. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. It's almost echoing Zephaniah. Everything in this world belongs to me. So don't try and keep it for yourself. Understand that all the stuff in this world, all the things, including you, belong to me. And then verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I wish so greatly I could just say that this particular word is for First Baptist Church Lovington. You'll have to... You'll have to discern that for yourself. Particularly when Haggai wrote this, God is speaking to the people of Israel. But I wish so, so much that I could say this word came directly from the Lord for his church that meets at Second Washington called First Baptist Church Lovington. That this would be a place of peace. That this would be a place of hope. That this would be a place that God's latter glory would be greater that the former or the glory that's here today would be greater than it was before. That people would see that the nations would shake because of who Christ is, because his people, belonging to him, existing for him, find their identity in him and him alone. Verse 10, on the 24th day, and I appreciate that no one said amen. Not really, I'm being sarcastic, but whatever. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and it touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. So, so you're saying that if one of these holy things touches something that's unclean, everything is unclean now. Then Haggai said, verse 13, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The, the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So if something clean touches something unclean, it affects everything. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer is unclean. Can I just tell you this? That the attitude of one affects many. My attitude affects all of you. One of your attitudes can affect all of us. The attitude of a few can and will affect the attitude of the majority. In this case, Haggai is bringing up the point the attitude of a few had infected and influenced the majority. Think about the 16 years that you haven't been doing anything. Why? Don't stop. Don't lose zeal. Don't lose enthusiasm. Continue on. Persevere. The selfish attitude of putting personal comforts first has spread through the whole community. This is why we pray often for our own church that we would have unity. Unity of mind that we would see the important things, that we would minimize the fleeting things and maximize the eternal king, that we would have one mind and who Christ says that we are. When attitudes and identity is wrong, nothing offered to God is clean. And then that's hard to understand. That's hard to grasp. Verses 13 and 14. 
just and Jesus preaches this in the New Testament, just because the outside of the cup looks clean doesn't make the inside clean. Everything must be clean. The whole attitude, the whole identity. When attitudes and identity is wrong, nothing offered to God is clean. Think about Old Testament worship. The desire that God has for his people. That they would be sincere in worship. That their heart would be first. They would work and see, what is my heart doing? And that their hands would be second. The work of this world. That obedience to God would be first and sacrifice would be second. Is not the, the attitude or the decrees of the New Testament the same? That the, the heart would be the main issue and we work on that first and think about our hands second? That we'd be obedient to Christ first and think about sacrificing second? It's still the same. That we would seek heart and obedience to Christ first. And that we would look at works and sacrifice and other things second place. I mean, Haggai had to remind the people belonging to God of spiritual priorities. Verse 15. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon the stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundations of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. And the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. Verse 20. On the 24th day of the, of the month, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow, overthrow the throne of kings, um, kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strengths of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. The Lord promises about what's going to happen. We trust in that Christ's work that he completed, that he's going to do, all those things for his glory. We have to be reminded, like Haggai reminded the people belonging to God, reminded of spiritual priorities. He had to remind them and, and possibly even teach them from a new about their post-exile identity. He taught them how not to get preoccupied with things of this world and to focus on the spiritual nature of that, their identity in God and His kingdom. God's kingdom on earth, His divine truth, uh, that, that, that loss of faith damages God's reputation, God's unique people, we belong to Him, God's reputation to the entire world. They had, they had to understand that they weren't just another ethnic, ethnic group to enjoy freedom. But instead, they have a greater identity and purpose than they could ever imagine. And that's where I want to end today with you. Gerald and some others are going to pass out for you a little packet here. Somebody can help Gerald with that. Appreciate that. In this packet is a, a few things. We're only going to look at the one that looks like this this morning. The rest of the stuff we're going to cover tonight. So I hope that you can come back with us tonight. In this packet that's being handed out, one to every family unit, there's a little brochure 
And I want you to grab that brochure, only that brochure. The rest of you can read at home or tonight when you come back and uh, open this brochure. We're going to go over this together. Identity of who we are as a church. What we're going to focus in on. How we filter. How we decide about ministries, potential ministries, former ministries. How we work together. What our mission is. What our vision is. Those types of things. To try and make it as simple for you as we can, some of, most of this will be on the screen also that we'll work through together. Stephen's going to help me out, and so I'm going to give him a second there. You got it. If you'll open it up, and that's trifold, but if you'll open it to where it's just um, opened like this, you'll see at the top of the right page there, it says Christ's completed work exists for us and we exist for Christ. This is our mission. This is who we are. This is what we, um, what we believe about our identity in Christ, our purpose. Uh, then we'll talk about in a second. But our mission, you can go to the next slide. Our mission is this, that Christ's completed work exists for us. And so because of that, we exist for Christ. Our vision is this, that we desire to be a multi-generational and multicultural family of disciples that makes disciples. I mean, this is wrapped up in what Christ has called us to do. Post-exile. Like, no longer in captivity of sin, but instead freed from sin. Living for Christ. We recognize that Christ's completed work exists for us. That it's complete. It's no longer. We see that it's, that it's for us. It's not just for uh, one person. It's not just for me, but it's for the entire world. We exist for Christ. You see, the, the beginning and the end of that statement is Christ because he is the beginning and the end. Christ's completed work exists for us. We exist for Christ. And the, mission, uh, the vision is this, that multi-generational, multicultural family of disciples that makes disciples. We'll go on from there and we'll talk about some filters from ministry. We highlighted the us and the we in that. Uh, the next slide says... Uh, Christ's completed work exists for us, and we exist for Christ. So let's highlight some of these things. H- how we're going to decide to do, uh, you know, kind of what's what's next, or, or what we're about. Oh, actually, I'm, I'm skipping ahead here. You can go to the next bullets there. You see them on there. I, I don't necessarily need to read them to you. Uh, I kind of summarize them for you, but we recognize that Christ is the beginning and the end. Uh, we exist. We recognize that it's his church, and we exist and belong to him. We recognize that Christ is the head of his church, and because of this, we have purpose. Next slide says this. <laughs> That uh, along with the vision, uh, you'll see that Christ has called his church to be disciple makers of all generations and all cultures. We're not a single culture or single generation church. Instead, we see that the church belonging to Christ is for all generations and all cultures. And so we recognize this commission and seek as a family to make disciples. Each disciple abiding in Christ, following the great commandment, and seeking to make more disciples, all for the sake of Christ. So how do we do that? Well, we have to come up with some filters. We have to minimize fleeting things. We have to maximize uh, the eternal the eternal king. And so how do we do that? How do we decide things like uh, is Sunday school or choir or preaching something that we can we should continue to do? We look at filters, filter these down, something new, something old, uh, filtering it down through uh, how we exist as a church. And so using the us and the we, uh, filters for ministry, it helps us determine if current ministries and potential ministries fit within our mission 
and our vision. So let's break this down. The us and the we. There's four things that those stand for. Unity. The first one is unity. Gospel-centered unity. So we're seeking to be one in heart, mind, and purpose, desiring for true unity and community as we serve and worship Christ together. So when we pray for unity, we're not just talking about something that's far-fetched or something that we think may happen someday, but we're truly praying that, that with the gospel, as we're centered upon the good news of Christ, that we would be one heart, one mind, one purpose for the glory of Christ. Us and we. The S in us is this, service, that we would long for or look towards or passionately pursue gospel-centered service. You can go to the next, the next slide or slides. We are growing together through serving Christ, His church, our community, and each other selflessly and full of joy that we look to these things. How can we, with the gospel, with our identity in Christ, serve each other and the world for His glory? Worship is the next in the we, us and we. We seek to have gospel-centered worship. Worship isn't just about music. Instead, it's about the gospel. And we worship with our entire lives. We are worshiping Christ in spirit and truth, concerned less about genre of music and more about the gospel of Jesus because that's what's most important, the good news of who Christ is, what he's done, what he's going to do in, in our life in him. And the last of that, us and we, is equipping, gospel-centered equipping, looking to equip you and myself, joining together in true discipleship, teaching one another biblical truth and how to impact the entire world with the gospel. A couple other things that I want to add to this on the next slides here. If you're growing in Christ, we preached this a few a few months ago, but if you're growing in Christ, we like to call it like kind of the disciples' path. Label it with four. Four things. Faithful proclamation of Christ and his teaching. Obey, obediently abiding in Christ. Unity through love. Recognition of the power, authority, and righteousness of, of Jesus. If you're growing in Christ, you're, we're seeing these four things, at least these four things, develop or being produced in your life. Faithful proclamation of Christ and his teaching. Obediently abiding in Christ. Unity through love. Recognition of the power and authority and righteousness of Jesus. And we love this because these things connect to our filters. On the next slide you'll see this. These things connect. You can go ahead and just connect them. You hit those arrows there and they'll show up. Unity is connected through unity through love. Service is connected through obediently abiding in Christ. Worship is connected through recognition of the power, authority, and righteousness of Jesus. And equipping is, is connected through faithful proclamation of Christ and his teaching. It's not just haphazardly put together or something uh, that we're just kind of making up. But instead, as leaders, including, and I know some of you need to hear this, but including deacons uh, together looking at these things saying, what does Christ desire of us? What is our identity? What is our purpose? What is it that we should be about? And how do we filter out the fleeting things of the world? How do we say that carpet's not an issue? And we say that Christ is an issue. We go through these filters. We look at what Christ desires of us. We don't preoccupy our, our time with things of this world, but instead we, we begin to occupy our time, even as a church as a whole, with the things that Christ desires of us. Christ exists. His completed work exists for us. And so with that, we exist for Christ. My charge to you is this. Trust in God. Fear nothing else. Fear God and God alone. Trust in Christ's completed work and the good news of Jesus. No longer, no longer being comfortable or apathetic and just saying, I want to continue living my life for my sake and my my own comforts, my own houses, but instead saying, for, for God and for his kingdom, 
for Christ and for his kingdom, seeking first Christ, my identity in him, my purpose in him, and him alone. I'm going to end with this. The town that we moved from had one blinking light, and I'm not saying blinking as a cuss word, had one blinking light. Highway 114 goes through there, had one blinking light. There were many accidents that happened at that blinking light. You're driving a certain speed, you're not thinking about slowing down, and as you blink and miss the town, and this blinking light now is trying to tell you to slow down, but you're not. And so many accidents, people trying to cross the highway to go to their house or their farm, or back into the city or the town. So many accidents. So the state highway department was contacted and said, hey, we think we need to put a four-way stop, or we need to put a, an actual traffic light in. No longer a blinking light, but we want to we make people stop. We want to make them stop and see the need to slow down, stop. You're causing accidents. You're causing deaths, fatalities. And the state came back and said, hey, we've done research. We've crunched the numbers. And there has yet not been enough fatalities for us to put a stoplight or make it a four-way stop. Isn't it worth just one? Sometimes you have to stop in order to see what's most important. And I think for us as a church, I'm asking you this. Would you stop this week? Would you stop and see what's most important? Life and life eternal. And that only happens through Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is clear, and I've probably made it unclear. So God, would you do your work, bring clarity to our minds and our hearts? Would you teach us this morning? Would you help us to respond to you in a way that shows you glory? That Christ is it that you desire for us to have life. You desire not for the world to perish. You desire for your bride to represent you well. God, help us, like my own self, to stop this week, to think thoroughly through what you desire of me so that I may lead well, that I may lead my family well, that I may lead myself well, that I may lead others well, my life wouldn't be about serving two masters, but instead would, would only be about serving you. That we recognize that we are being built up together as your temple, as you're residing in us, together your church to represent you. So God, stir in our hearts. Awaken our lives to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My invitation is going to be this. Whatever the Lord is stirring in your hearts, that you would respond to that. If that means you come down here, so you come down here. If that means you respond there, so you respond there. But as the Lord is stirring in your hearts, which I've been pleading with him too, as he's stirring in your hearts, may you respond faithfully to him this morning. Let's stand. Let's respond.